Okay, so today I'm really happy to welcome on the Metaverse podcast co-founder of Indiverse, Brian Georges. Welcome, Brian. So great to finally get you on. Obviously, we know each other reasonably well, uh, you having gone through the Outlier Basecamp Accelerator. So we describe Indiverse as the next generation of fan engagement, uh, making Metaverse marketing and experiences as easy as sending a text message. Lots of reasons why I've got you on the show, not just because you went through our program and you're kind of one of the exciting teams to be getting a lot of traction. But I think because you as a founder, you know, serial founder, you actually hot off winning the um, speed pitch at South by Southwest for 23, which is no easy accomplishment. But also because I think it's quite timely to be talking to you, given everything that's going on around XR, as in um, virtual reality and augmented reality, uh, given everything with Apple, but I know also things that you like to point to, such as Nike and, and um, what they're doing with esports. Um, so I mentioned you get some really interesting traction. You've improved the MMR um, by about a multiple of six over the last couple of quarters. And you're now about just under half, or well, just over half a million um, fans under management. Under management because you are uh, B2B2C. So they're your your partners, uh, fans, but you're enabling their engagement. And I think also because you're a good example of founders that are being pragmatic about how you adopt, integrate, leverage Web3 technology to effectively bring or bridge kind of general consumers into the space. So you could call that Web 2.5, but generally it's, it's kind of seeing some kind of pragmatism. And I know You've got some really cool innovations, such as something called Magic uh, 2FA, which is by leveraging SMS and stuff like that. So we're going to get into some of the design choices that drive um, your kind of product decisioning. But let's learn a little bit more about you. You are um, CEO. You do have a co-founder. But let's let's talk a little bit about Brian first, and then and then maybe kind of how you found your co-founder and arrived at where you are today with um, Indivis. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I mean, as my journey actually started off um as a developer for four years so before fintech was cool i was i was building back-end fintech systems for insurance and retail banks at the time but just fast forward a couple of years i was actually based in the u.s moved to europe and got into um what i'll call like mobile identity so i built a platform called smart digits that's owned by telefonica group who owns like o2 for example and what we did we actually were able to power custom onboarding and custom experience just based on you entering your phone number into a registration form and we were able to do some cool things, for example, like help understand based on big data, understand if you're likely to top up every month. And therefore, we can actually use that as an indicator to say you have a steady income. And therefore, maybe for someone in South America that is, is unbanked, you can get access to credit to buy your first refrigerator even, right? Um, and then we started doing traditional onboarding journeys, people like PayPal, Google, Yahoo, etc. And it was really about getting them to get more signups more seamlessly just based on a phone number. Um, but the reason I bring that up is, as I get to later on, we saw a very similar application to how we can get people to onboard to Metaverse and Web3 experiences just based on a phone number. Robin, my co-founder, we actually met through a, a friend who worked at Vice Media at the time. And Robin was doing a really good job in physical like brand and entertainment activations. So he was actually helping brands like Adidas, North Face, Red Bull actually sell more of their product by helping them engage fans of musicians. So AJ Tracy, for example, 
Now, a lot of musicians would actually do brand activations in physical locations to get people to engage more with the brand. And together, we actually saw this opportunity where as people are moving more, as tech is moving more into bridging that divide between virtual and physical experiences and products, like how can we make that easy for anybody, right? To be able to lead with brand-led experiences that actually engage and tell stories versus just transactional experiences like the Amazon culture. It's about how can I send as many messages as possible in as a crowded inbox as possible to get you to click with a 3% success rate and you're like caring about it. So we set out to build that path where there's like probably two fundamental problems. Is one is how do you make it easy for a marketer? Um, because some most marketers are still trying to solve web two marketing. So like um you bring all these complex things about wallets and crypto and NFTs, um, and collections and minting, and it's like forget it, you know. So how do you make that really easy? On the flip side for their customers. How do you make it so easy that the tech isn't even a thing, right? Like um, people talk about NFTs, but like we work with music clients and we tell them like, you listen to music, you don't listen to MP3s, right? So we feel there's a need where NFTs as beautiful as the tech is probably needs to be secondary to the business problem and the experiences you're trying to deliver to customers. Yeah. And I think, look, it was that kind of pragmatism, but also combined background between you and your co-founder that that really appealed to us when you applied to the accelerator. You know, this kind of goal of abstracting away um, the complexity, both of Web3, but then also kind of these augmented experiences. AR is a, a big part of what you guys do, or an element at least. You know, focus on that kind of user onboarding. Um, actually, the, the identity bit's really interesting. And if we get time, maybe we kind of come back to that and, and, and how anchoring an identity in you know whether it's telco or utilities or banking could potentially feed into to web3 probably not going to get time but I'll, I'll i'll put a post-it note up and we'll, we'll see whether we get back so i kind of you know did this intro to uh indiverse as kind of next generation of fan engagement um and making metaverse marketing as easy as a text message so th- there's two parts of that one of course is you know fan engagement i guess that's music but also more broader than that. Um, and then there is effectively the solution that you built, which is kind of onboarding users from a marketing sense, which I guess is agnostic to an industry in a way, or it, it could be more generally applied. What was kind of the, the 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 starting point? Was it that you were kind of solving this metaverse marketing piece and you thought it would be well applied to music and, and fan engagement or was it the other way around yeah it was the other way around so um so just as a stat we looked at music because we felt they were most hard done by the ecosystem in terms of engaging their fans directly so you look at instagram as an example the typical conversion rates on an instagram post to purchase is 0.4 to like two percent add to that they don't even own their own customer data so they have no idea who their customers are right you have Ticketmaster and the 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 ticketing companies are owning their ticketing information, event information. You have Instagram owning all their social information, right? So it's a really tough problem that they were facing. So that's why we started there. It's probably a second reason, which we felt there was a lot of value on the table as a result, because they have a very loyal fan base that's really like tied and has a strong affinity to the brand of a musician, right? Or an artist. That made our job easier because then it wasn't about trying to convince people is because they already had the stories and the creative which is how you make sure it reaches the right people and you can actually convert them in fun smart ways so that's why we started with music but as we're seeing now um it is universal to your point uh we do have a preference for for use cases where it's sort of like creative led i would say so more focused on brands or businesses that have stories to tell that have a purpose 
versus someone that's trying to sell a commodity because they do the hard work of actually creating the content and creating the experiences and we do the easy work of automating it and making sure it reaches their right fan base right so when we're talking about you know some of these kind of fans and the management the 500k you know, you've got some some pretty major artists coming on board now right yeah it's very cool so we we were very careful in terms of who we started with again we want to focus on mid-tier artists um who mid-tier meaning anywhere between like fifty thousand up to two hundred fifty thousand instagram followers as an example but we had a very potent fan base that they wanted to unlock more value from but in clever fun ways not in very commercial driven ways right so we curated a list so people um it's like the artist artists so folks like yeji for example um we work with the xx now um so that's rami and those guys we we focus a lot on like the grime culture as well in the uk so jama part of the bbk group which like skepta and those guys as well and then even in the us we've been working with like santi gold out in la who's been around for a bit but it's like a very cool like indie pop rock punk um, type of vibe and we're just helping them figure out how which is a general theme for us is how do you take your brand and your fandom and build an e-commerce business around it well, through your, your core fan base. So I know you, you've you kind of been watching in particular the Nike eSports collab. And I think uh, you said off air, it's kind of very representative of the kind of direction that you're you're wanting to take Indiverse. Could you maybe talk talk through that as a bit of news for us? Yeah, sure. So obviously at the, in the back end, we, we are obviously using NFC technology. And as you know, more and more, Ecosystems are being created around NFT gating. Uh, one of them now is very popular is Nike with the dot swoosh. And they recently announced with EA Sports that anyone who collected the the or the OF1 um, box, it actually can be used as a an item within an EA Sports game. Um, and it's something we've been believing in and working on for the last six months. So what, what we've been doing is we, we've made it possible um, for our customers to convert any media type into a digital collectible. So think of it like anything from an MP3 file to get a GIF, but also any 3D asset, right? Um, and then through the Outlier Ventures program, we've actually partnered with, um, with I guess we call them virtualization. I don't know, like virtual content creators who can yeah. actually through APIs take an asset and, and get it to a level of quality where it could be used as an ER filter as a virtual try-on or as a gaming skin. So what that means now is anyone who's creating any sort of like, um, let's say virtual IP, one of virtual assets, um, through a platform, it could be compatible out the box with gaming systems as well, uh, which is pretty powerful. So now we have one artist called Yeji. She has this item of an axe, right? And it's a 3D asset. Now once um, a Nike signed to pave the way where through using NFT technology, Someone who's collected EAG's acts, and they're also a gamer, always seeing with our customers, like 30% of their fans are actual gamers as well. There's now potential to have the ability to get early or exclusive access to use that acts within a gaming environment. Right? Very so cool. opening up a whole new opportunity of utility um, that goes way beyond just simple collecting digital collectibles. It says VR, so virtual try on applicability. Um, obviously AR filter applicability, but also like gaming skin applicability on top of the general like access pass um, 
utility that we've seen. Very cool. I mean, I love the idea of existing digital assets that I guess can demonstrate fandom, you know, that you have a particular MP3 or whatever it might be, and being able to convert that into some form of uh, NFT or digital asset. That, that's that's kind of super cool. Yeah, so that's what we're seeing. So even uh, we've plugged into Shopify. So through our partners and these APIs, we can take any merch, um, whether it's a, a fashion brand or a music brand, and uh, we can make it reusable as a skin within a gaming environment. By by nature of the of, of our partnerships, the quality will be there. The last piece of that puzzle that's missing is is ensuring that brands or companies like EA Sports, like Epic Games, like Unity, actually allow gating so these creators can actually share and provide utility to their fans within these gaming platforms, which they actually spend a lot of time. Let's talk about some of the stack. Sounds like there's two elements to it. So one is how you leverage, you know, existing mass technology, so SMS, mobile SMS, but then also do some innovative things in in the world of AR, albeit still tethered to, to the phone, right? So not yet with kind of headsets and devices and anything else. I mean, the fundamental belief that we have is the world is moving away from traditional email and even SMS marketing into more experiential marketing and um, you need to meet fans or customers where they engage most and and we see that as messenger first right so in some markets like the us sms is more popular than whatsapp right so sms makes sense um but in most markets whatsapp is very important then when you get into certain segments telegram might be more interesting on discord so what we've built at the hub is essentially um think of it as a a bot, a chatbot, where you can actually define gamified experiences around any sort of activation or campaign um, that can reach customers and create interactions based on the channel that these customers are in. So right now, SMS and WhatsApp are very popular, but we're seeing demand for Discord and Telegram. So that's the core of it. And through those interactive experiences, we're actually adding more friction. Um, So it's not just a two-step process. It's actually maybe five in cases, sometimes more, but it's actually gamified and fun. And what we've seen is counterintuitively, um, at least initially, um, it actually drives more conversion rates. So we're seeing 95 to 98% opt-in rates um, and 90% conversion rates in terms of click-throughs to some other call to action versus, again, 3 to 10% in email. um, And forget about Instagram, like 0.4%. So that's the first key thing. And so we've we've really focused on using those mobile channels, um, not because of that one reason, because it's highly... Like um, has a high conversion rate, but also, especially when it's tied to a phone number. Once you've opted in, we don't have to ask you for your phone number because when Jimmy messages the XX, um, the application can actually see your phone number without you having to type it in. And once you say yes to opt in to marketing, at that point you have a verified phone number. And then the last step of that process is the, is the onboarding into um, the digital experiences, whether it's collectibles, ER or VR experiences, etc. And all that happened is one simple link that's sort of like a one-time password. So that's like a magic link. Send over a, a secure channel like an SMS. Well, you can argue how secure SMS is in some cases. Um, but once you click that link, um, we verify a phone number. And that's actually the first form of identity. And then we can actually see that wallet is tied to that phone number is tied to an existing wallet um, through our platform. If it's not, we spin one up and airdrop your first collectible in one step. So that's that's like versus 10 steps in terms of email signups right now. And so we've seen, again, typical industry average is 40% um, signup rates. We're getting like 90% signup rates just from using that as a key channel and making it seamless. 
I mean, if I kind of play this out, right? So you, you kind of starting with this mid-tier artist. Um, they have deep engagement. You know, they're kind of open to creative ways of attracting, engaging um, a fan base. But is this similar to building out a social network in a way in a kind of MySpace model? So it's a social network, but predicated on fandom and kind of community around around fandom. But the, the end state was a social network in effect, right? Is, is, would the same be true with what you're doing with Indieverse? Yeah, it's an interesting point. So, um, so it's definitely a community being built. But I think we think of it more like um, autonomous communities for now. So as, as Indiverse, we're pretty channel agnostic. So we have some customers where we're actually helping them to actually get more conversions to an NFT loyalty or, or fan club, right? Even though we can offer the same things ourselves. But like, the, way we, the way we look at ourselves is we're trying, to, um, we're trying to understand as much as possible, like who are your most loyal fans? So the reason we call it fans and like customers because we're really focusing on that ten to twenty percent, that that's actually that, that, that drives eighty percent of your your engagement or revenue. So we plug into things like Shopify. We look at every single email event, understand what people are clicking, and then we automate and segment your top three seg um, fan bases. And at that point, you can push them to any channel. We don't care, right? If you want to push them to Decentraland, we'll do that. If you want to push them to AR experience, we'll do that too. If you want to push them to gaming platform, we can do that. Um, but the thing is, we understand as best as possible, like how to make that as as efficient and as like um yeah as efficient as possible so it's kind of like a cross metaverse crm in a way you know you, you're kind of allowing the in this case the artist or the artist management company but it, it could be a brand i guess moving forward right um to to track and engage uh with their kind of most loyal part of their fan base and community exactly and, and it's funny when you mentioned like cross metaverse so we we even see metaverse companies coming to us um and they're asking to use our apis because they already have their own nft programs nft wallets etc but what they don't have is those automations to get people to onboard and reward them in two clicks so so we're looking at partnerships now where we're we're enabling that level of like let's say um, onboarding and an acquisition for metaverse spaces, right? Um, which is super interesting for us. Yeah, so we we very much see ourselves as moving and, and helping power a feature of of let's say a multiverse, um, and that could be both traditional, more centralized versions, but also these fully decentralized open metaverse experiences as well. Right. So it's kind of just allowing that fluidity, but you do you do also develop specific immersive experiences right so i, kn I know you did a, a really cool immersive ar experience with uh, one of the artists that you mentioned earlier in the uk grime scene could you maybe kind of talk, talk through that a bit as an example of you know going beyond existing channels to kind of creating new environments so jamo was one of or is one of the founding fathers in in the grime scene in the uk so think of everything from Stormzy to um, to Skepta, etc. A lot of those um, artists actually got their inspiration from actually footage that Jama captured in his basement, right? So his basement is now like the actual location has a blue pa blue plaque for his, his um, contribution to culture, right, in the UK. And in, in the last year, it actually got um, it was on exhibit in the Museum of London for six months. Um, so what we've actually worked on with Jama is he wanted that that basement to not just be a physical location only available to people who has the access to get there but be something that can be inspiring to people globally right across the world so we actually decided to help him move his museum 
from a physical basement, sorry, from a physical location to a metaverse basement. Um, so we actually went about the process of creating a virtual experience where JAMA can actually bring his fan base, not just locally, but globally, um, and then host a different range of events and giving five experiences, everything from educating people about the basement, but then hosting special private events based on what you've earned through things you've bought, things you've listened to over time. So like, we have some big artists that are going to come live in the basement in the next couple of months. We can't probably mention them now, um, but it'll be in the grime trap scene as well. Um, and again, it's how you can figure out ways to build community, give back to community, but at the same time, um, figure out ways to, to fund, I guess, his career, right? Um, and so tying like shopping experiences to fund metaverse experiences um, where he has control of his IP and his data. So we're powering that for him. I would say one thing we've realized over time is it's not something we want to scale um, tremendously. I think it's a great use case for us. But we see our tech being more as that backbone um, to power any metaverse experience for any other artist who want to have those types of communities and give their fans those types of experiences. Yeah, and this is one of the key things, right? I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we would have had this conversation or you would have had this conversation with somebody within the program. It's how you, you want to become a highly scalable tech company versus a consultancy. So where a lot of, or an agency, where a lot of um, startups get stuck is they're doing very bespoke custom work for clients, which doesn't scale beyond being a consultancy. But I think, you know, you've done it in a really smart way where you've kind of built these very immersive use cases. They kind of show the potential integrated into this kind of backbone as you kind of scale out that offering. And clearly the 500K fans as a management show that you've managed to do that. To what extent is kind of accessibility and inclusion a, a part of what you do? Because, you know, I think the fact, if we go back to that implementation, the idea that, you know, AR, as long as it's mobile tethered, it is is in theory accessible to everyone with a smartphone. And as you say, um, can be experienced anywhere in the world, you know, wh wherever you're sat. Is that a, a driver for you and the, and the technology? Or do you just think it's ultimately a good product development? No, I think it was a hard problem to solve. Um, it was actually difficult to even find um, developers who wanted to build web AR experiences because it's, it's still not as clean as using an app where you can get native with the, um, the tech. So, um, but we chose that for that reason is, um, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is, again, going back to the fundamental thing of onboarding, you just get huge drop-off rates with even having to um, build and install an app, right? And then secondly, just in terms of accessibility for our client base, you can't have multiple apps and we, we don't want to be another Facebook, right, in that sense. So we felt it was important to, to leverage browser technology um, to create that level of like independence for, um, for any customer to use it, but also accessibility. So all you need is a mobile phone with a browser, um, um, as you said, a smartphone, and you can actually engage in an AR to VR experience. So we just had the Apple announcement. We're recording 6th of June now. Um, so yesterday, uh, June 5th, there was kind of the, the Apple um, announcement around its um, XR I mean, yeah, XR headset, right? You know, so given your multiverse or your cross metaverse, depending on how you put it, how do you see the importance of innovations like this, both kind of hardware and software relative to, to, to what you're trying to do? Do you have a particular perspective on Apple versus Oculus? Um, where do you see it, it all heading? Yeah, so, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think I'll start with the software first, right? So one of our advisors actually is a PhD at Niantic. 
to the other folks behind like Pokemon Go and the things they do at Niantic is mind blowing. Is I have no doubt in my mind that the future of <laughs> of the world will be AR, right? Across every single sector. Um they're basically mapping out the globe and, and dropping AR experiences by location. So we're using some of that tech with some of our activations. Um I think the software is is it's almost, I wouldn't say a done deal, but it's definitely going on that trajectory of being something I'll be a, a, a mainstay, mainstream thing. So the, the next bit then becomes a the hardware. Like how do people actually experience these experiences? Uh, I think I think we're still early, um, to be honest. I think it's very interesting to see Apple's play. I think it's $3,000. Um, yeah, so $3,300, yeah. $3,300. So um, it's obviously as Apple, they're going to shake, they're going to wake people up and you're going to experience things that you've never seen before. Um, but then you have to figure out what does that mean for mass adoption um, and what types of brands and what types of ecosystems will want to play um, within their ecosystem, which is another case in itself when you look at what happened with the App Store, right? So um, I think hardware-wise, what I expect to happen, um, at least my hope, is that the form factors would be dwindled down to something where it can easily just be played in my in my glasses, for example, right? Um, so that's where I expect it to go. Uh, I think there's uh, different types of consumers that want different types of experiences. So I think the pro consumer will be a, a proper VR headset experience. But I think there's a lot of things you can do just from either like a simple camera on your on your glasses to even still using your handset if you had to. So, I mean, there's a lot of debate on the price point and people are saying, well, look, you know, clearly this is just for developers now. It's not for kind of the average consumer. But I guess you are... The perfect example of the kind of target audience in a way, people being highly innovative, they want to experiment, they want to kind of creatively push the boundary. Their approach clearly is that they're kind of, if you kind of compare it to Meta, for example, with Oculus, Oculus heavily subsidized is a heavily subsidized um, piece of hardware. It's actually cheaper than the latest iPhone yet. So loads of people bought it, but there's nobody creating any content. I've got like a couple here. I've pretty much got every generation and and I get really excited. I pick it up, I put it on, I go back in and there's still no new content since the last generation I bought or like very limited. It gets put back down again and doesn't get used for several months. Apple's approach, they I guess they seem to think that by opening up first the developers rather than consumers, um, they can get a, get a head start on, on content and then the consumers will come. As a developer, at what point is something like this headset as a pro tool interesting um, versus it kind of requiring a certain level of uh, consumer adoption? Yeah, I think I think it is interesting, as you said, as an enthusiast, uh, but our customers and, and their fans, they're not, they're not headset users, right? Right. They're still... They're still outdoors shopping. Um, we're looking more like what can you do in a pop-up shop, right? Or, or what you can do in a physical activation in store that leverages AR technology, but in a way that's not just a PR stunt, but in a way that actually drives conversion, signups, and sales, you know? So for us, it's not about giving someone a headset when they walk into the store to experience something. It's more still around how can you use your mobile phone to, to enter a different portal because you're a loyal customer or, or you've um, spent so much an item um in that day for example so that's where our mindset is you know about like um ready player one and and obviously neil stevenson with the metaverse so that's where where they're trying to push that vision but still an enthusiast play i do think corporate use cases will be very relevant to them like i said we're getting very well like in healthcare for example um cad etc because they'll be very very useful 
but for like consumer fashion music even even the gaming levels that we're looking at it's going to be a long slog i think yeah i guess it's a generational thing as well right you know like um if three thousand just under three thousand three hundred dollars is the starting point it's going to be a couple of years before there's an affordable device for you know, somebody under 25, um, equivalent to, uh, you know, I guess a smartphone, presumably you need all the kind of payment plans in place as well. So, you know, realistically, uh, mobile tethered experiences are probably going to be the dominant form of how people will experience XR for at least the next two, three, four years, right? Yeah, it's interesting, Jimmy, because uh, I, I still remember probably dating myself when, when the first iPhone came out, right? Uh, and everyone had Blackberries at the time, right? And it's all like corporate linked most of the time. But the iPhone was, the form factor was transformational. It was so much more convenient than anything else that existed before it. So for me, the, the price point was still very high. But everyone wanted one. And once you got one, life just became so much easier. Uh, I don't see the same thing happening with the headsets right now, right? I think the form factor is still a big issue for me personally. Um, it's just a cool enthusiast thing. Uh, I'm interested to see where they take it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I guess, um, so we're, we're, we're some way from that, but maybe at some point that form factor improves enough that it could be a catalyst where people will, will, will pay the premium. Well, look, Brian, it's been great having you on. Um, great to catch up, hear the progress that you've got. Looking forward to seeing, you know, what you do over the course of this year. Uh, you know, maybe we get you back on in, in the near future um, to talk about um, how you've evolved the stack and, and done some kind of, improve that distribution thanks for coming on yeah great being here thanks for having me jamie good seeing you again if you enjoyed today's podcast please make sure you subscribe rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of web3 